So when you're looking at your career, realize, and this is what my first mentor, Joel Salatin, used to tell me this old folk kind of farm saying, sometimes good enough is perfect. That's what he would say. But now every single person here has the ability to A, start their own business, has the ability to go to college, has the ability to get a bachelor's, then a master's. And then when they get into the work field, you can stay in your city and get a job. You can travel. You can start a company in about 20 different fields in a matter of weeks or months. I feel like one of the big problems why people don't make enough money anymore is they literally have paralysis by overanalysis. Welcome to today's podcast, radio program, live stream. I'm talking to Professor Barry Schwartz. We're going to talk about five ways to make better money-making decisions. I feel like the whole world is stressed about money and finances, and I brought a absolute expert. He's a professor at Berkeley. He's teaching wisdom. Uh, what was the three, the name of the class? Work, work wisdom, and happiness. Work, wisdom, and happiness. And um, he's written one of my favorite books that I recommend. It's a book that's called um, The Paradox of Choice. He's written multiple books. But I would say that's probably the one you're the most famous for, maybe. Yeah, for sure. He's also done three TED Talks. So he's a real expert, and he's somebody that I have um, gotten a lot of insight from, both through his books and, you know, conversationally. I think Facebook. There we go. Welcome, Facebook. I was just introducing Professor Barry Schwartz. We're going to be talking about five ways to make money, uh, better money-making decisions. If you want to have more money, let me just start with this. I want to start with a question to you because we've got a special expert here. If you had to sum up in one paragraph why in the year 2017, where there's Google where there's more access to information than ever. Why do people still make stupid decisions all the time? Why do I feel, and maybe it's just me, feel like common sense is no longer common? What's going on in the human brain that's making that's messing us up? Is it too much choice like you talk about? Is it emotions? It's many things. You know, the, there's an assumption that more information is better is always better than less. And that turns out to be true when you go from having no information to having some information. But, you know, we're long past the point of some information. We now are overwhelmed with information, and it's not consistent. And I don't think our cognitive apparatus is able to assimilate and integrate all the information that's out there. And the result is that um, we, we are often easily led astray. And in a situation where people are facing huge amounts of information and huge amounts of choice, they often choose on the basis of what's easiest to evaluate rather than on the basis of what's most important to evaluate. And often what's easiest to evaluate is not the most useful information out there. If you choose a romantic partner based on physical appearance, which is easy to evaluate, instead of, say, on kindness, intelligence, sense of, sense of humor, um, empathy, all of which are hard to evaluate, you know, you'll end up with a pretty crappy romantic partner, probably. That's the same thing is true when you're making investment decisions. Yeah, let's think about career, because most people watching, most humans are, are going to make 
most of their income not from investments and not from this. It's going to be career related, not from inheriting money. So when it comes to career, um, I was reading a book. I forget which book. It might have been your book, but it was basically, oh, no, no. It's actually um, Peter Drucker, his book, Managing Oneself. He says, look, in the 1800s, you basically took the career that your dad had. That's why they had names like, you know, son at the end. Um, you're, if your dad was a butcher, you were the butcher's son, you became a butcher. So there was less choice and it wasn't confusing. But now every single person here watching has the ability to A, start their own business, has the ability to go into the workforce without going to college, has the ability to go to college, has the ability to get a bachelor's, then a master's if they want or stop. So, and then when they get into the work field, I mean, you can stay in your city and get a job. You can travel. Um, you can start, you know, a company in about 20 different fields in a matter of weeks or months. What do you think? So people, I feel like one of the big problems why people don't make enough money anymore is they literally uh, have paralysis by overanalysis. And this is one of the things you teach in your book. So what's the solution? What do you do? Do you just say, good enough, I've looked a little bit, I look for a month, and then I just pick the next best well, option? You just, um, you just answered the question. Exactly what you do is you look for good enough. You don't look for the best. Uh, I watched this teaching at a very uh, selective college for 45 years, uh, very talented students, and they were graduating just as you described. Everything was open to them. And they couldn't figure out which path was the right path to follow. And they tortured themselves. They were full of anxiety. They worked at Starbucks, hoping one morning they'd wake up knowing what the future would hold. And, uh, and, and of course, no magic descends from the heavens and tells you what to do with the rest of your life. And I think the problem is that they thought the task was to get the best possible job or pursue the best possible career instead of a good enough job. Uh, and it, you're right, back in the olden days where there was no choice and you were kind of locked in to doing what your father did or to the limited number of opportunities in the town in which you grew up, and that was way too confining. But we've now exploded that. Uh, and, we that, and that. And we think that more is better than less, and that turns out not to be true. We did a study some years ago tracking college seniors as they applied for jobs. And there were some college seniors who we described as maximizers. They wanted the best. And there were others who we described as satisficers. They wanted good enough. And in my book, I talk about this distinction. And here's what we found. The maximizers got better jobs than the satisficers, measured by starting salary. And they felt worse about the jobs they got. Because they, you know, no matter how good the job was, they thought or they suspected or they imagined that somewhere out there in the universe there was a better job that they hadn't gotten or that they hadn't even seen. And if you spend your life in a good place thinking you could be in a better place, you're never going to be satisfied with what you've got. And I, so I think the problem is not only that there's too much choice. I think the problem is also that what too much choice has done is it's given people aspirations and expectations that are completely unmeetable so that even when they do well, they feel like they fail. Yeah, Dr. David Buss, one of the, the 
one of the other real smart psychology and professor, and he taught at Harvard, and now he's at University of Texas, Austin. He told me one of the problems with Instagram is people post their prettiest picture. Girls, and, and the girls who are the prettiest have the most followers, visually, you know, the most beautiful. And so what happens is a lot of guys, they've, he said he's done research where if you show a married guy or a guy, you know, dating someone a picture of his girlfriend, their current girlfriend, while they're looking at a whole bunch of other beautiful women, they're less happy in their relationship. So you're right, you're actually better off once you get married, guys. Lay off the Instagram, lay off Maxim Magazine. You know, do you think that's true? And it's worse than that because because in general, you know, uh, Instagram, Facebook doesn't matter what. Do you post stuff about your boring right. ordinary days? No. You post stuff about your special days. And people look at it and they go, God, that person's living a much better life than I am. And so that's become, that becomes the standard of comparison. And you say, well, compared to her, my life sucks. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that the secret really is much more about how we evaluate the shape we're in than about the actual objective shape we're in. There are limits to that. If you're living in abject poverty, life's, life is terrible. But, you know, in the United States and the middle class and upper middle class, nobody's worried about putting food on the table or putting a roof over their head. So people are living pretty good lives. And the trick is to be satisfied with good lives instead of always imagining that there's a better life there if you can only figure out how to, how to grab it. But let me, so let me ask you this. So, you, you know, so if we say step number one of the five is be willing to stop searching at some point. So when you're looking at your career, realize, and this is what my first mentor, Joel Salatin, used to tell me, this old folk kind of farm saying, sometimes good enough is perfect. That's what he would say. But number two. I would say virtually, virtually all, all the, the time, time, good enough. Is good. I don't know if it's perfect. It's good but let enough. me ask you this question, and this is, this is maybe segue into step number or, or secret number two, we could say. These are, these are really secrets because I feel like most people in the world have never heard what you're saying, even though millions of people have seen your TED Talks and, you know, gone to school and read your books, there's still 7 billion people that haven't heard of this. So um, when it, so number two, and this is a real specific question, let's just take an actual example. Okay. So I have uh, somebody in mind that's one of, that follows my social media and they came to me I don't know, a few weeks ago. Actually, they texted me this morning, and it's a, it's a female, and she said, Ty, I'm sad because I've been looking at a lot of things, and I don't know what to do. Let me actually, I'll read you now. But here's my question. What's a concrete answer? So if I just tell her step number one is good enough is perfect, does that mean she instantly stopped? Now, let's just say hypothetically she's looked at three. She's tried three different jobs. She's intern here, intern there, or gotten a part-time job. Is there a number? I once read a book that said, a mathematician said, in their experience, as a general rule of thumb, not always accurate, um, you should look at 12 options, not choose any of them, and after the 12th, you should stop at the next best one that you run into. So like you go on 12 first dates from Match.com, or you go to 12 job fairs or you go to 12 seminars on 12 different businesses, you listen to all of them, don't make your decision until you've gone through all 12, then either go back to the best one or you pick the next one. 
Is that rule of thumb complete garbage? What do you think? It's not complete garbage. It's it's a mathematical proof. And it's, it's often referred to as the secretary problem. How many people do you inter interview for a position before you hire somebody? And I think, you know, there's nothing magic about 12. It's sort of amazing that that's, you can prove that that's like the right stopping point. But the critical thing is that you ask yourself, what's a good enough job? Because you need to do a little bit of self-scrutiny. What do I care about in a job? And I think what often happens is that people want the most interesting work, the most socially important work, the most meaningful work, the work that pays the best, the work that's in the best city, the work with the best colleagues, uh, and the work with the best opportunities for advancement. And so that's my standard. And nothing that short, falls short of that will do. Well, you know what? This person's going to be unemployed. So you got, but I don't want to say, listen, what's most important is your salary. Um, because different people will find different things important. So I think the critical thing is you got to sit down and ask yourself, what's the most important thing to me about my work? Uh, the book I wrote called Why We Work suggests that although people glom onto salary, that's almost never the most important thing. That the quality, the character of the work, the amount of control and autonomy you have, how meaningful the work is, are all more important to satisfaction than salary. So you find work that's meaningful, that makes a difference, and you don't worry about the salary. You know, am I making enough to pay my rent? If yes, then fine. Uh, if not, and then I have to look further. So what, you know, I think it's hard to sit down. You know, there's this old saying, don't just do something, sit there. The first thing people need to do is sit down and ask themselves, what's important to me? And then you look for the thing, the job that's important to you, and you don't, that's good in, in the dimension that's important to you, and you don't worry so about it. So you're basically that. saying, maybe we'll say step number two, to make better financial decisions and decisions in general in life, after you understand principle number one, by the way, those of you asking, this is Professor Barry Schwartz. He taught at Dartmouth for many, many, uh, Swarthmore, not Dartmouth, Swarthmore for many years, and now he's a professor at Berkeley and three-time TED Talk uh, speaker and also author of some great books and the most famous of which is The Paradox of Choice. So the little intro because some people are coming in late. Step number one we said was sometimes, or you said most of the time, a good enough decision, a good enough career, a good enough business, you just stop. You don't have to keep trying new things. And then step number two is you must, before you evaluate who you should marry, before you evaluate who should date, what business you should start, what job you should settle in, you need to, and, and I teach this a lot, If you, and I'm, I'll show you something. These are my yellow notepads. This is brand new ones. I keep this all over the place. And Charlie Munger, the self-made billionaire partner of Warren Buffett, says you have to have something called assiduity. Assiduity means you can look up the technical definition in Merriam-Webster's uh, dictionary, but it basically means sit your ass in a chair. The ability to sit down, focus, take a pen, and write out, what did you say, three or four criteria that a job must have, and once it has those, you stop. And it can't have everything. Do you think, just to go off subject for a second, do you think that applies with dating? You make your top three. I want someone, you know, funny, 
happy and who likes basketball if you like basketball and you pretty much anybody who meets that criteria you don't say well she must also be a supermodel she must also be I, I meet people that are like she has to be five foot six she has to be brunette I always tell people girls change their hair, hair color don't worry about that um but do you think that applies to the dating world too? I absolutely do. And and you raised a very important point. You know, women change their hair color, but the point is, more generally, people change. And so you start a relationship, and what that person becomes will partly be affected by the nature of your relationship. So, I mean, here's another little tip. Um, you should, um, and it's true for hiring people too, you should hire on the basis of attributes you don't know how to teach and then teach the ones you do know how to teach. And so, you know, you want somebody with energy, integrity, and commitment. Nobody knows how to teach energy, integrity, and commitment. So you hire somebody who's full of that and you teach them how to do spreadsheet analysis, which we do know how to teach. And in the short run, that person's not going to be contributing much to the company because they didn't know how to do anything. But in the long run, the person will contribute enormously to the company because that person has the attributes that matter that you don't know how to train. So I think you can apply the same logic when it comes to choosing a partner. You, you know, The things you should elevate in importance are things where you don't know how to change the character of the person you're involved with. And the other stuff, you just let it evolve as an, as your interaction, as your relationship evolves. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, in these days of Tinder, where it's really easy to just keep swiping, it's very hard to convince people they should stop looking until they found the perfect partner. So you think something like Tinder, theoretically, switching from money to the dating world, love world, do you think it's causing more problems than it's solving? Yes, absolutely. So you think it's good or bad for society? In general, I think, it's, I think it's terrible. You know, there are going to be a handful of people who meet partners and, and form significant relationships. And then there are going to be thousands and thousands of people who keep swiping. Yeah. I actually read the statistic about 2% of the guys get most of the dates or get most of the replies. And the average guy is cut out or, you know, like you said, he meets a girl or the girl meets a guy. And they go, oh, we got along pretty good. And then they just move on. And so everybody, it's just like a everybody chasing their tail kind of thing. That's my sense. You know, now look, people may learn how to make better use of this as, uh, as they have more experience with it. But at the moment, I think all it does is it sort of makes an, a, a promise to people that can't be delivered, the yeah. which is that just sitting in your, in your, in your living room, on your living room couch, you're going to find your, uh, Perfect partner. So step number three, I like this. Um, look for the things that we could even say complement you. So when you're, step number one, realize you're going to have to stop looking at some point. Step number two, make a list of your must-haves. So when specifically for those of you who are entrepreneurs, when you want to launch a new product or you're not sure what business to start, make your criteria list. I want my business, say, to be able to work from home, I want it to be in art or something like that, and maybe three criteria. And then you go to number three, which is when you look at your choices, look at things that maybe complement you, even with career that, um, like you said, if you're looking for a business partner, let's say, 
Look for a business partner that has traits you don't know how to teach. So I, I, I have a perfect example right now. I started a business uh, in Silicon Valley, me and a, a friend, Alex, 50-50 partners. It's now the biggest book shipping, nonfiction book shipping club, club in the world called MentorBox. Um, and with MentorBox, uh, I basically said, this guy's super good at execution and I'm good at coming up with ideas. So the reason the partnership works is he has something that I don't like. I, it's that I know how to teach execution. I hate doing it. So following your rule, it's like it's perfect fit because I don't have to teach what I don't know how to teach or I don't like teaching. And all the other stuff that we don't know about each other evolves over time. Let me just say related to that, that this is one of the reasons why diversity in companies is such a benefit because people come into the room and if everyone's a carbon copy of everybody else, all they, you know, you've got an echo chamber, everyone has the same idea and thinks it's great. You bring people together who come from different backgrounds and have different perspectives and the echo chamber goes away. Instead, you make some harebrained suggestion and somebody tells you why it's harebrained. And, you know, I don't think people deliberately uh, organize their companies so that everyone's a copy of them. You know, instead they talk about, quote, fit. We want to hire people who fit the culture, which basically means we want to hire people who are just like us. And it's a disastrous way to run a business in general, and especially so at this time in life when every business is potentially, um, you know, international in scope and multicultural in potential audience. So you need to make sure that the people in the room, comp as you put it, complement one another. And often that means making sure that the people in the room have significantly different backgrounds in addition to having different skill sets. Do you disagree? There was a big controversy um, on Google where the, a guy wrote, he got fired by Google. He was a lead programmer and he said, there's not a lot of women as computer programmers and that's because of genetics. I want to talk about genetics. First, let's talk about that and then let's, talk about genetics in general for this maximizer satisfizer do you agree he wrote a long argument certain people backed him um, and said yes women are not good programmers because their mind is not as systematic and then other people said that's bs women are the same as men and you're saying that you think the diversity outweighs it all well look there are a couple of questions as an empirical matter is it true that there are more first-class uh, coders who are men than women? I don't know the answer to that. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. So suppose it's true. Then the question is, well, why? And so one, one, one possible explanation for why is that there's some biological difference. Another, which to me is much more plausible, is that there's a difference in socialization, which means you bring different people into the organization hire for what you don't know how to train, and then you teach them how to code. And you end up with a richer organization. Um, you know, so he had this theory that really, not only are women worse coders than men, but there's nothing you could do to make that, to change that. Uh, the first may be true. The second, I find highly doubtful. Um, you know, at the college level, I discovered this at Swarthmore, there were almost as many women majoring in computer science as men. 20 years, 20 years before 
that was not remotely true. If you found one or two women doing computer science, it was a lot. And that's not true anymore. So in less than a generation, the, um, you know, the playing field got leveled, at least in the, at, the, at the level of the college classroom. You know, so I think these are, these are differences that are relatively easily overcome. And what you gain in diversity more than compensates for the little extra training you might have to do to bring women up to speed to the extent that, that that's even true, which and it may not be true. So I don't think the guy's I don't believe the guy should have been fired, by the way, but I think he was wrong. Let me do a quick uh, little video here, just announcing that I'm here. I'm here live with Berkeley professor Barry Schwartz. We're streaming live from my podcast. We're talking about five ways to make better money making decisions. He's a three-time TED Talk uh, speaker. He's also a prof uh, professor of a fascinating class, which includes wisdom, which is kind of today's conversation. Five ways to make better money making decisions. So you can watch it live now, or you can listen for the podcast in the next couple of days. Okay, so let me ask you. Let's stay on this subject of... Yeah, let's say on this, we're almost done. We're on step number four. So, genetics. You talked earlier that there's a difference between maximizers and satisficers. Maximizers are always looking for greener grass, and satisficers go, eh, this person's pretty good. I'll stay married to them, or this job's pretty good. I'm not going to look. Do you think there's a genetic component? Because I was going to say, from my experience, step number four is know your natural tendencies. What would you, be, so if you're naturally a maximizer, you got to know to pull it back uh, a little bit. What would you say? Well, look, the word natural uh, varies a lot. Uh, natural doesn't mean genetic. Natural means that through some combination of where you started and how you spent the, your first 15 years on earth, you've developed a tendency to be a maximizer. You know, I think a lot of parents, I've never heard a parent say, I only want what's good enough for my children. You know, parents always want the best for their children. Perfectly understandable. Children watch their parents making decisions on their behalf. And lo and behold, when they start making their own decisions, they only want the best for themselves. So it's not about genetics. Um, you, I think it's very important to know your tendencies, but what's also important is knowing which of these tendencies can be changed. And I think that many, many of the things that we think we're stuck with, we're not stuck with. I, when I wrote this book on choice, I got thousands of emails from people who had been tortured making decisions. And they mostly said, oh, I'm so glad to discover that it wasn't just me. Uh, and, you know, how do I fix this? And I said, well, you know, it's not easy to fix. You've got a lifetime of habits of making decisions. You don't snap your fingers and the, and the habits go away. You have to be willing to work at it, be systematic about it, be uncomfortable as you're making a transition from only the best will do to good enough is good enough. And expect that over time, the decision making will be easier and you'll end up more satisfied with the decisions you make. So you got to make a commitment to a program and not uh, take a magic pill that's going to change you. So it's often effortful to change natural tendencies or to control or override them. But I think it's possible once people appreciate 
that it's important to do this. So last bit as we close up here, I'll keep, I'm going to stay on. Professor Schwartz has to go. Um, question for you, is there one practical, and this is step number five, know how to change yourself. What's a practical thing? Is it simply awareness that, wow, I'm look, and then the awareness in and of itself makes you do it less? Is it something more tangible where every day you look at your, your notepad and go, okay, only focus on those three. Stop looking for greener grass. Do you have any kind of... Yeah, I think I think it's both. I think you can't fix something unless you know it's broken. So awareness is important, but awareness doesn't fix things by itself. So I think absolutely, systematically, you make it, for example, when you go shopping, I'm only going to go to three stores, or I'm only going to look at three websites. Um, when you're applying for jobs, I'm only going to apply for five jobs, or whatever it is. Um, you deliberately limit the options you consider and get into the habit of looking for good enough and then stopping. And as I say, in the short run, it's going to feel very uncomfortable because you know you just know that if you looked a little bit harder, you'd find a better job, except that you probably won't. But over time, it starts to feel natural because A, you've discovered you actually like the job you have, and B, you've, you've taught yourself a new set of habits. So I don't think real uh, um, awareness is enough. I think awareness has to lead to a plan of action that will change, modify, transform what you regard as problematic. And what we've been focusing on is this ridiculous aspiration to always get the best. And is there a real science that shows people happier when they follow this advice? Yes. There's real science that shows that people who are satisficers are happier than people who are maximized. They are, they're more optimistic, they're more satisfied with their lives, they're less likely to be depressed. It's a, it's a good way to go through life. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to stay on here. Uh, everybody thank Professor Schwartz. Be sure to check out his TED Talk, several TED Talks, but also I highly recommend to start with his best-selling book, the Paradox of Choice. Barry Schwartz, now a professor at Berkeley. Thanks so much, and uh, I hope we'll, we'll, we've been talking for every quarter or so. I hope to talk to you again. Good. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, bye. So now you guys got just me. So let me pull this a little closer. Um, like I was saying, you know, I'll talk, I'm going to talk about a few things. My day, I'm here in New York. And uh, those are, um, I'll tell you, the best takeaway for me, everybody got different best things, hire people for all you entrepreneurs that know stuff you can't teach. And I think he said, date people who have traits that you don't know how to teach. So I think that's good. I mean, uh, friendship, like me, I'm a, like an extroverted person. I do think, and, and not all scientists agree with this, that extroverts do better with introverts. And, um, you know, there's some science that refutes this, but in my experience, if you're an extroverted person, especially if you're an introvert, by the way, because I've been talking about business networking a lot. A lot of you want to know how to do business network. I'm going to give you the two keys. I'm going to add some bonuses here. Number one key is get your butt out of the house. A lot of people make business networking too hard. They're like, oh, what's your first line in this and that? I'm like, well... 
if you ain't out of the house, nothing works. <laughs> it's kind of like, how do you get over a breakup and find somebody new? Rule number one, if you're depressed, sitting in your bed, laying in your bed, all despondent, there is no solution. There's no advice. But then step number two is for all of you who suck or think you suck at business networking, you need to have an introvert. And that lines up with what, what professor, I'm sorry, an extrovert. Like I, t- I have a friend, I'm pretty extroverted, but I have a friend, James Swanick, who's quadruple as extroverted as I am. And um, you know what I do? Every big party that I know there's a ton of networking, I bring him along. And I just see somebody, I'll be like, yo, go make an intro. And he just introducing me. to it's, it's amazing how good he is. So if you suck at socializing, all you have to do is make one friend with an extrovert. That's going to help your business networking for sure for business partners. I'm more extroverted. Alex Mayer, my business partner, is an introvert. And, you know, it works out amazingly well. So, yeah, that, that's, I guess that would be the first thing that I would say. That, that, or the main thing I would say um, right now from that takeaway or my takeaway from that talk with Barry Schwartz. We got Slime the Hugger, oh, Slime Thugger. It's almost like Slim Thugger on Twitter says, Ty, I just got a pre-order copy of your book. Yeah, check out, I'm almost done, halfway done with a book. If you go to tylopez.com slash book, it's pretty cool. This is going to teach you the inner circle stuff, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Instagram is lagging here. What's up with the connections here? Was it doing good when you weren't doing it earlier? Somebody said, Ty, can you relist the five items? Okay. Five things. Quick recap, and I'll kind of add on to them. The first thing is, and why I brought Barry Schwartz on, is because all of us, myself included, it's easy to get distracted with too many options. So what you end up doing is not doing anything. I call that paralysis by, uh, uh, paralysis by overanalysis. I'm just going to reset Instagram. Hi, how was your day on YouTube, I'm asked. Pretty good. I just looked at, if you looked at my Snapchat, the best damn place I've ever seen in New York City. I was looking at real estate while I'm here. Um, so it's amazing place. If You should check out my Snapchat. It's 8,000 square feet. And, um, yeah, someone said, Ty, tell us about Rihanna. Yeah, I came to New York. I'm here in New York. I just went to the Diamond Ball dinner, and um, it's pretty, pretty powerhouse event. I went, and Rihanna throws a dinner once a year. All the movie, I mean, all the music industry came, comes out. Jay Brown, a friend of mine, him and Jay-Z own Rock Nation, so he invited me, and um, it was cool. I was sitting next to Future and Calvin Harris, who, if any of you like music, everybody was there. Kendrick did a little performance. It was about 100, 150 people. Um, but the interesting thing was, I was just it reminding me for everybody watching, it's not just what you know, it's who you know. And everybody's heard that statement before. I'm sure you've heard it before. But nobody really, like, like acts on it, you know? Let me, let me restart Instagram. What's up, Instagram? I'm live from New York City. I'm talking, I just got off the phone with Barry Schwartz, but I'm talking about business networking. The old saying is not what you know, it's who you know. Everybody's heard it, but very few people act on it. So I was just kind of 
part of the reason I come to New York is for business networking. Like basically the way the modern world is going, it's urbanizing. Now, I don't know if that's a good trend. I love to actually be out in nature. I just bought a farm, um, a 96 acre farm in Virginia that I go to because I, I get stir crazy being in the city. Um, but cities are important if you want a business network. There's a great book by Steven Johnson called Where Good Ideas Come From. And what it basically shows is there's an actual mathematical formula that shows that big cities have better ideas coming from them. And the reason is there's a synergy of ideas. There's lots of smart people talking to each other and business networking. I'm actually going to, I think we should change the subject real quick. Let's, let's turn off, let's go ahead and turn off Instagram. Twitter and YouTube and restart them. I'm going to restart these with a different topic. Uh, leave this one. That that one's good. I'll keep talking to Instagram. So these three just turn off and I want to talk about business networking. So no, I'm going to leave this. I think it'll be one long. These longer podcasts do better, I think. So just all you listening on the podcast, we're just continuing on the podcast. By the way, a little side note. Always test stuff. You want to make more money, don't assume stuff. For example, if you ask people, how long should your podcast? Some people will tell you, oh, 10 minutes. Some people will tell you 20 minutes. Some people will tell you an hour. Call it uh, seven steps to better to be a better business networker. Seven steps to being a better business networker. Actually, we might start this as a new podcast. So all you listening to the podcast, I'm going to wrap this up and put it in a separate episode. Go check out pre-order of my book, tylopez.com slash book, and also go over to uh, Barry Schwartz. Check out his book. I got a link to it on my website, but or you can just Google and check Amazon. Um, Paradox of Choice. It's an important book, man. You're bombarded with literally thousands, not just hundreds, of decisions a day. Literally, there's thousands, if you count billboards and internet banner ads, and YouTube pre-roll ads and um, product placement stuff and labels, you're bombarded with people wanting you to do their thing. And so if you don't know how to make good decisions, I promise you, you will be somebody's bitch. Somebody else will make the decision for you. So thanks so much for being on this podcast. Um, I'm resetting here in one second. You can go check the next podcast. I'm going to talk about, I want to talk about seven steps to being a better business networker. It's important that you know this stuff. So make sure you check it out.